Kurt Vonnegut, the author, had um, an alter ego named Kilgore Trout in a lot of his uh, short stories and novels. And Kilgore Trout, much like Kurt Vonnegut, came up with all these very inventive scenarios. And one of these inventive scenarios was once imagining uh, a dialogue between two pieces of yeast. And these two pieces of yeast were discussing the purpose of life while they gorged themselves on sugar and suffocated in their own excrement. <laughs> now, because yeast is of limited intelligence and limited self-understanding, these two pieces of yeast never guessed that all this action was into the transformation that they were becoming champagne. Now, if you've been around for a while, you might know that I don't drink champagne. But I still love the moral of this story, because it's about how sometimes our perspective on ourselves can be so limited that we can miss our potential for becoming and changing into something marvelous and beautiful. I think about this human capacity, this potential to change and to grow. When I think about today's song, today's song of the Spirit, One Day, which is a hopeful song for a despairing time, or when we find ourselves in despair. And knowing that I was going to be preaching on this song today, I perhaps was a little bit more attuned to uh, what I guess I could call a trifecta of human misery and aggression this past week. And I want to show it to you. First one is this. Maybe some of you know what this is. It's a drone. There was a story this past week, I don't know if many of you caught it, that the McClatchy News Service had gotten access to some heretofore private government files. The administration has been telling us that drone, these Hellfire missiles, which they rained down, um, were just targeted at senior Al-Qaeda operatives in the mountainous region of Pakistan. But what these documents revealed is, in fact, these drones, as many people have suspected, are being used much more widely, and that, in fact, they include these things that, awful phrase, collateral damage. We may not know how many innocent people are being killed by these drones, and we may not be being told the truth about it. Second of this trifecta of aggression is this fellow, who some of you might know. Mike Rice, the former basketball coach at Rutgers University, who in the last couple weeks, because of actually ESPN, I got to give him some credit here for some good journalism, um, they got in possession of a number of tapes that showed hours of them. Mike Rice routinely, regularly bullying, belittling, humiliating, acting aggressively physically and verbally to his college players under his charge, including using some of these words that some of you might read that I will not repeat. Mike Rice is no longer the head basketball coach at Rutgers University since this has come to light. And the final thing that really stuck in my mind and in my heart even more this past week is this picture. Some of you might know who these people are. These are the parents 
of a number of the children killed at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut. This is a still picture taken from the interview that they did last Sunday night on 60 Minutes. It was hard to watch, and I can tell from some of your expressions that many of you watched it as well too, of course, the difficulty that I experienced in me watching is nothing at all like the difficulty of what these parents have had to live with since mid-December. And one thing really caught my attention. This fellow here in the tie with his hands almost in a kind of heart-shaped prayerful pose, I don't know if that's intentional or not, but that just visually resonated with me, talked about speaking for those who survive and live in the wake of other people's violence. He said he hoped that this tragedy, yet another tragedy of mass violence and aggression, he hoped that in the wake of this, that we can evolve as a society, that we can evolve. That's what this hope of a prayer, of a song, one day is all about. This fellow, Modest Yahoo, who sings it, is an interesting guy. He's a hip-hop artist who also looks like a rabbinical scholar from two centuries ago. He's got a big old beard, but actually I think he has shaved off recently, but he's a really interesting fellow. He practices a kind of enlightened, more modern form of Orthodox Judaism. And so running throughout this song, when I listen to it, I wonder, I'm almost sure he knows these words from the prophet Isaiah, from his own tradition, that they would beat their swords into plowshares and they would study war no more. It is a hope for human evolution that we would find a more meaningful, more peaceful, more humane way to handle our disagreements and to be able to deal more mindfully and more lovingly with all those things that afflict us that the song identifies, this extreme version of winners versus losers that ends in bloodshed, these acts of aggressions and violence, and these acts of warfare that particularly visit themselves awfully upon children, upon the innocent. And these are his lines, sometimes in my tears I drown. I think a lot of people, even those of us who aren't parents, have felt this way after Sandy Hook. And I think it's so important to remember at moments when we feel overwhelmed by the difficulty of the world and feel perhaps despair for all the inhumane, unmindful, awful ways that we can treat each other, to remember that there is still within our lives the movement of a larger reality than simply our tears or our sadness alone. I want to give you a little bit of homework today. Not in preparation, obviously, because I haven't given it to you already, but this is after the fact, if you will, extra credit, although there's no possible way I can grade you on this. <laughs> but one of the things I want to encourage you to do is take a look at a video. It's this. It's called The Empathetic Civilization. The Empathetic Civilization. It's about 10 minutes long. That's why I can't show it to you today. And it makes a compelling, and not just compelling, but logical and historically valid argument that in fact we, as a human race, 
are evolving into greater and greater understandings and practice of empathy and compassion. That we, as the video makes known, are enlarging that sense of who is the we, emerging out of a tribal, nationalistic, very often religious understanding that limits the understanding of who really counts. I mean, we can see um, examples of this a number of years ago, and I know I've preached on this before, that about five, six years ago, there was a, um, a, a public opinion poll taken of self-identified evangelical Christians. Now, if you know anything about self-identical, uh, self-identified evangelical Christians, they are preached over and over again a message that says, unless you believe in a certain way, you are going to hell. Go into any evangelical or most evangelical churches, fundamentalist churches, you'll hear that message. And yet 60% of self-identified evangelical Christians in this study said, as long as you're a good person, you can get to heaven. That is the enlarging or an expression of the enlarging of empathy. And so I try to remember this video that perhaps it is empathy that is the invisible hand made tangible in the works of our visible hands that can really grow our hearts and grow our lives and our souls. I try to remember it at the times in which I feel overwhelmed by my awareness of our still continuing capacity for inhumanity and cruelty. And so this is one of the things I do believe that most of us just simply know more about the nature of the world than our parents did, or their parents did, or their parents did. And sometimes we confuse this fact with the idea that the world is getting worse because we know more about many of the awful things that we do. But actually, I want to say our capacity to hold greater awareness about our incapacity for inhumanity and cruelty towards each other is the greatest sign of our potential to change, that we are more aware now of what harm really means and of what cruelty costs us. Now, of course, this growing capacity for empathy does not happen all at once. And so where this returns me to when I feel in those moments potentially overwhelmed by despair about our capacity for cruelty is to enlarge my sense of the importance of my actions and our actions and to know the impact that those actions can and do have in other people's lives in enlarging our capacity for compassion. So this is the second part of the homework, and it's briefer than the first part of the homework. It's another video. If you Google one day and pay it forward, you will come up with a video that a number of you have sent to me. And Harry, same thing as first service. You were the first one to send it to me. It's a story well, told, played out to the soundtrack of the song of one act of kindness begetting another 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 act of kindness until it all comes back around to the first person in the video, a construction worker who has offered the first act of kindness. I mean, I'm a sentimentalist at heart, so I really love this video. It makes me feel good. But even more than that, there's a lesson here that's important, which is what happens when the video ends. I mean, we see the circle of kindness come back upon itself, but I also wonder about What happens when the video ends, imagining the actors were real, 
and they take the influence from these acts of compassion, both receiving and giving, out into the rest of their lives and changes people that we don't see in the video. I mean, this hope, and it's not just a hope, it's, it's a core belief about the nature of reality, is one of our core convictions here at Wellsprings. We call it ripples of connection. This is the image we use, like a pebble dropped into a pond. We have no idea how far our actions may reach. Just think about that for a moment. Think about how empowering that thought is in our capacity for cruelty and our capacity for kindness. Some people want to own their actions, and ultimately we don't own our actions. We can own our intentions. We can own our motivations. But just think that, you know, actions you will take today will ripple outward, even if they're very small things, perhaps especially if they're very small things that we do, that will ripple outwards and will influence people that you will never meet. This is why we say that a mature understanding of freedom, that freedom reaches its fulfillment with each other. Not in spite of each other, but with and in connection with each other. Because in the broadest sense, how we act is not just what we do for each other, with each other, here, right now. It is about, in fact, influencing people that we will never meet and we will never see. That is a profoundly liberating idea to unleash our capacity for goodness and to want to limit our capacity for causing harm. Some of you might know the teaching from the Iroquois people that talks about, you know, before any action is taken, one of their teachings is we think about, you know, seven generations in the future, what will be the effects here? And I love this, this language exactly from this teaching, that before an action is taken, they take into account even those whose faces are yet beneath the surface of the ground. I love that image. Those whose faces are yet beneath the surface of the ground. We tend to think about the people whose faces are beneath the ground are those who have died. And that certainly is true, and we are connected to them through the love of our hearts. But also the people who are yet to be, who will be risen up through the potential of our world to continue growing and developing, that creation is not finished and done. And so this capacity to look forward and to anticipate, not to plan, but just simply to know that the actions that we take have influences can enlarge our sense of the fact that, yes, we can evolve. One of the other things I do when I feel particularly pessimistic, perhaps at times even cynical about human nature, is I go back and I read a book called The Expert Speak. It, in reality, it's actually a very funny book because it is a collection of experts from thousands of years of so-called wisdom about the experts in their time completely, completely misjudging what's going to happen. So you get examples in the cultural section, uh, the, the guy who, trust me, paid for this in ways and his family paid for it in ways that I'm, I'm sure they're probably still feeling. The, the guy from the record company who said about the Beatles, we don't like their sound and by the way, guitar music is on its way out. They are paying for that a long time. But, but in a more serious sense, in the experts speak, we also get to hear some of the so-called wisdom of people who were very famous in their day and in their age. I mean, 
words, names like Edison, Jefferson, and Lincoln, who did some amazing things. And we also get to hear that for all the amazing things that they did, they also spoke some awful, odious, nonsensical, misogynistic, racist thoughts. Now, many of those were of their time, and so perhaps they can be forgiven. But here's the thing. As great as their lives were, our wisdom did not stop with them. We evolved beyond the wisdom of the past to find better ways of living together. It doesn't mean that suffering, that hatred, that aggression have stopped being real. It simply means that we have the capacity over time to affirm, really affirm in our hearts what is one of the most successful PR campaigns I have ever seen. And I think it's so successful because it speaks to human hearts. It is that campaign that many of us have seen that is targeted at LGBT teenagers who are the objects of cruelty and bullying, and older people telling them, it gets better. I always like to say it can get better, because when we're talking about moral and spiritual evolution, it's not like it just happens. It doesn't happen automatically, or easily, or quickly. But we know that we ourselves today are inheritors of people who made choices long ago that we will never meet, who envisioned that the empathy and the hearts of our world could change and then acted that way. And today we inherit and we are blessed by the conscious, mindful choices that they made. We inherit the fruits of yesterday's seeds just as someday, hopefully one day, people will harvest our own actions. It kind of put a, puts a different spin on just ourselves alone, doesn't it? That we are planting seeds that other people will harvest the meaning from. And so I want to say whatever will happen this week as it's being debated and weeks to come about current gun laws and, and gun safety, and I know many of you from talking with you over these last few months have put time and energy and your presence to trying to, to give this nation more sane ways, more healthy ways in this kind of gun-obsessed culture. But whatever happens with these current gun laws, making a more peaceful, kind, and humane world, that work will continue for us. It doesn't end because one bill passes or another does not. It's like in the song when he sings, but when negativity surrounds, I know one day it will all turn around. But that capacity for the turning to a conversion to a more kind humanity. It takes our effort. And it takes the strength, first and foremost, to believe that we can change. This past week, I heard one particular story of someone whose life was visited by harm. And unimaginable, sorrowful harm, not unimaginable to all of us, but just an awful thing. 
someone who knows, not in the same way, but deep in their hearts, what those parents at Newtown felt and are feeling. This, woman name, this woman's name is Candace Leitner. Some of you might know her because she's the person who started MAD, Mothers Against Drunk Driving. And she started it because her own daughter was killed by a drunk driver and killed by a person who was a multiple serial offender and yet had only got slaps on the wrist. And even after her daughter's life had been taken, still got a minimal, minimal jail sentence. I mean, maybe you know these, these stories. I've heard more of them than I care to know about kind of how drunk driving used to be treated. I've known stories. It used to be a joke, especially if you knew someone in power. I mean, literally, I've heard stories of people, especially in small towns where they get pulled over and their blood alcohol limit is way way beyond what it should be, beyond anything safe. And yet they know someone in the local police, or police force and they make a call and they get driven home rather than taken to jail. This is the kind of lack of seriousness that drunk driving used to be treated with until people's hearts broke open enough to change. Mothers Against Drunk Driving legitimately estimates that something like 300,000 lives have been saved since they have started their efforts. We know in this congregation that that hasn't saved every life. About five years ago, we lost a child of this congregation to a drunk driver right here on Route 100. Not all harm has disappeared. And yet I think we can say that we do not treat this as a joke anymore or just something that people do as an accident. This is what Candace Leitner said about her actions. She said, you kick a few pebbles, you turn a few stones, and eventually you have an avalanche, an avalanche that can change some behaviors and change culture and change laws. And by the way, this awareness of harm, that it's not a joke, these are the seeds of empathy, and it makes a difference. One of the things they studied, and this is something the Harvard School of Public Health studied, it was quoted in the New York Times a number of years ago, that during periods where MAD had PR blitzes on, high media exposure times, alcohol-related fatalities fell twice as rapidly as during low media periods. Enlarging our awareness makes a real difference. It cannot reduce all harm. It cannot take away all cruelty. It cannot take away all, mindfulness, all mindlessness. But it means when our consciousness enlarges and we want to shut down because we get scared by the cruelty of this world to vow not to shut down, but to keep our awareness and our hearts open. Which brings me, by the way, to uh, a movie that I'm not going to preach about uh, this summer during uh, Spirit Flicks. It's The Hangover Part 3. <laughs> now, I, I saw the first one. Actually saw it in the theaters and did preach on it, didn't like it, um, laughed once or twice, 
uh, but really was turned off by uh, its rampant and totally casual homophobia and misogyny that are woven all throughout these movies. Um, and also, it's casual, if not open-handed embrace of drunk driving. I mean, literally, if you've seen these movies, I saw the first one in the theater, as I said, I saw the second one at home, didn't laugh once. At some time, at some point, I will see this third movie. I just don't want to pay any money to see it because I don't want to support it. But I've already seen in the promos someone driving with a beer in their hand. This buffoonery, this jackassery, isn't funny. This behavior kills teenage girls. Here's the thing I like least about that world, the moral world, if you could say this, of The Hangover, the series of movies, is that it seems to be a karma-free universe, the most immature understanding of human freedom. Not that our freedom reaches its fulfillment with each other, but that we act in total isolation from each other, and it really doesn't matter what we do. Well, it does matter what we do. In the hangover universe, there's no STDs. There's no crimes charged. There's no people killed. There are no consequences. When there are no consequences, when there is no karma, that's what karma means, by the way. <laughs> we take actions, they have consequences. Don't make karma into something metaphysical. Cause and consequence, that's what karma is about. When there are no consequences, or we imagine there are no consequences, there can be no change, which means there can be no evolution, which means there can be no transformation. There can be no opening of the heart. This is why it really matters what we believe spiritually. To believe and affirm in a creation that is not over long ago, you know, a creation story, a creation myth that happened once again, and do we believe stuff happened a long time ago so that we will be in the right place when creation comes to an end so we can go to heaven like some little reward we get? No. It's more like what Thich Nhat Hanh saying, if we want to know heaven on earth, which if we will know any heaven later on in whatever form that might be, I think we will be prepared for it by knowing heaven right here and right now. That is a relational understanding of reality. And by relational understanding of reality, I'm saying we matter. Our choices matter. This is an ancient universalist teaching, truly ancient. One of the first theologians after the time of Jesus, a man named Origen, who eventually was declared a heretic by the church that he helped to found, because his belief was that love, divine love, was the most powerful force in the universe, so powerful that, in fact, eventually even Satan himself, the fallen angel of all the fallen angels, would be redeemed. That's how powerful love is. In the Buddhist tradition, there's the teaching of the bodhisattva. And Buddhism has its same form of individualism as all traditions do. Originally, it was thought, well, it's about individual enlightenment individual Buddhahood. The teaching of the Bodhisattva tradition says this, 
that there are those who choose to be reborn age after age after age after age, even though they could pursue their own individual enlightenment until all beings are awakened. You know, we don't have to buy the ancient mythology in order to understand the teaching, which is that all of us matter and nothing is wasted. Our own tradition says this with Ralph Waldo Emerson in his wonderful essay, which I really encourage you to read, called The Oversoul. We are the part of a larger whole. It is our birthright and our destiny, and it is our awakening to know that we are part of that larger life. Or perhaps simply put, as Rob Bell, an evangelical Christian with a big old open heart, said a couple years ago in a wonderful book with an even better title, simply, Love Wins. One day, love can win. Love can win because of our capacity for enlarging that sense of belonging, of who is the us and who really belongs. One of our own great spiritual ancestors, William Ellery Channing, put it this way. And I love this sentence, but even more, I love to live in the awareness of this sentence. This is a spiritual practice. He wrote, I am a member of the living family of all souls. Not I am a living member of the family of Unitarians. Not I am a living member of the family of my fellow citizens. I am a living member of the family of all souls. Channing's words encourage us to evolve into, in fact, what we already are, connected. So the one day that the singer sings and hope for will be actual because of our possible actions this day. The seeds that we plant of justice and kindness and love that are more powerful than literally any of us could ever know whether they're large, huge actions or small, little actions that we may not even notice ourselves. I'm going to conclude with Theodore Parker's words. These words were quoted very often by Dr. King. Theodore Parker, one of our great Unitarian ministers of the 1800s, says that I cannot see the full trajectory of the moral universe. I cannot divine it. But I can, with my eye and my perspective, perceive that the arc of the universe bends in the direction of justice. May we allow our perspective to see that today and to commit our hands and open our hearts so that we know whenever the one day will come that our lives will help have to, will have helped to make it so. And that universe will bend just a little bit more because of us in that direction of justice 
and kindness and love. May it be so. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. O divine invitation to creation, may we really know that the meaning of our lives is not fixed or final, that this invitation to creation is truly present tense among us and within us this day. This invitation that says in whatever ways we can within our aptitudes, within our gifts and the expression of our heart's truest desire to connect, that we can know that our actions matter. And to know that because our actions matter, we are powerful with love. We are powerful with goodness. We are powerful with an evolving empathy that this day is bearing fruit and one day will bear an even fuller fruit. Amen.